0: I'm Murray McGibbon and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and writers and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is South African-born actor, voice artist, writer, executive training consultant and business owner, Graham Hopkins. He's a multi-award winning performer in South Africa and he works extensively on stage, radio, television and film. He has performed in stage tours in the United Kingdom and Ireland, and his work has taken him to Eastern Europe, Israel, Rwanda, and, of course, the United States of America. He was in Bloomington as the guest of the New Frontiers program to perform the title role in King Lear in Shakespeare's original pronunciation. Graham, welcome to Profiles on WFIU.
1: Thank you very much, Murray. It's a great honor to be here.
0: Well, that's a very long list of job descriptions you have. How have you come to do all those things and find the time to do
1: them? Well, it's an interesting story because I started off studying medicine very, many years ago. And I was about three years into the course and I was cutting up a rat or something. And I had a, an epiphany, a moment where I thought, well, you know, this is not what I want to do with my life. And I decided that I wanted to be a performer. I had learned to act at school, and I really wanted to be a performer. And I made a decision to go for it. And one of the things that you do when you're an actor, particularly in a country where there isn't a in an enormous industry, you have to find other strings to your bow. And so I studied English and mathematics at university. I became a mathematics teacher for a while. And then when I became an actor for, I think, about... 10 or 12 years I earned a living exclusively out of acting and voice work and performance and then I had a child and I realized I had to put the child through school and that meant that I needed to have other things to do and so I started developing other other skills to fill in but acting has always been my first love and when I'm asked what is your occupation actor is always top of the list.
0: Well I guess it's rather rare for somebody to be able to call themselves an actor full-time Have you ever been unemployed or had to do other kinds of work?
1: I have been very, very fortunate, Murray. I've always been in work. And when I haven't been performing on the stage or in television or film, radio, I've been filling in with other things. And as I say, I'm an executive trainer. I have a company. um, Well, I'm a partner in a company. My partners are very, very good to me because when we started the company, I said, we'll do this on the premise that whenever an acting gig comes up, that's what I'm going to do because I am first and foremost an actor. And I've been able to do that and very, very fortunate for that.
0: Well, Congratulations. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the differences between acting in the various media that you have participated in?
1: An interesting question, Murray. They are very, very different disciplines. Let's start with radio, where the microphone is the only way in which you communicate. And when I started as a professional actor in Johannesburg, you must remember that television came late to South Africa under the apartheid government. They delayed it for many years. And it Why was only, that? I think that they felt that it was, you know, it was under. Uh, there was a thing called Christian national education in South Africa, and uh, it was a very repressive society uh, from a, from a moral point of view. Obviously, from a racial point of view, and they felt that television was going to corrupt the populace, and so television didn't appear until oh the mid seventies. So radio was the great entertainment medium. And when I entered the profession in, in, the, mid, in the early 80s, radio was still a very, very uh, popular medium. And so I did hundreds and hundreds of radio dramas. And in fact, I'm still involved with a radio soap, which we record every Tuesday morning and which goes out all every weekday, uh, called Radio Vuga. And uh, it's about a small community radio station. Back to the technique of radio... The microphone is all you have to create that world. And that's a wonderful challenge for an actor because you use your voice, your voice to convey everything you need to convey. Wonderful medium and, and one of my favorites, although there's not much radio done these days, and I believe in America, even less than in South Africa. The stage is my first love. I believe that on stage you get a chance to create a real world more than you do in any other medium, simply because you have... That stage is your world, and for the duration of the scene, that is the world that you can create. On film, it's really very artificial. It might not be so to the viewer, but that's all smoke and mirrors. It's made on the editing floor, and when you're actually filming, you have thousands of people on the other side of the camera all staring at you, lights shining in your face, make-up people ready to put powder on your nose cameras stuck right up your nose so it's a very unreal situation and you have it's a there's a lot more artifice in film acting I think film and television acting than there is in stage where you have the opportunity to create a real world.
0: Graham when did you first realize that you might have an aptitude for the stage?
1: I was very very shy retiring little boy and I was sent to uh, one of the top private schools in South Africa. It's called Hilton College in KwaZulu-Natal. And uh, my father had been there, and so it was unquestioned that I would go there. And uh, I went there. I was very shy. And there was... One day there was a, a notice put on the notice board that several boys were to report to the Memorial Hall at 7 p.m. that evening for a rehearsal of the house play. And my name was on it. So I went along, and the master said, Well, here are your scripts. Now you read this play. And we read the play, and to my horror, I had been cast as the chief lady policewoman (laughs) leading a squad of lady policewomen It was a delightful little comedy called Arthur. But I read it with growing horror. I had to marshal these policewomen and march them on. We were told that we would be wearing gym slips borrowed from our sister school, St. Anne's, and that we would have rugby socks stuffed into our T-shirts to create bosoms, and I was Utterly horrified, this just wasn't me. And I went to the master after the, after the rehearsal and I said, please, sir, I'll do anything. I'll make props for you, I'll stage manage, I'll fetch and carry, but please, please don't make me do this, this is not me. And he sort of chuckled and patted me on the shoulder and said, don't worry, Hopkins, you'll be okay. Well, we rehearsed it and we had a great deal of fun rehearsing it. But you must remember that in, in the 1970s, an all-boys boarding school this was a group of jocks, I think you would call them in America. And we were standing in the wings before we went on. And I could hear them, rowdy, laughing, jeering. And I thought, I'm going to die tonight. I'm going to die. And our cue came up, and I took a deep breath. And I marched my lady policewomen onto the stage with my whistle. And the entire auditorium erupted with laughter. And everything I did made them laugh more. I had to pause while the laughter died down. And then I'd go on, and everything I did, they screamed with laughter. And it was like a drug being pumped into my veins. I felt the adrenaline pumping. I walked off that stage, and I wanted more of it. I wanted more of it. And uh, so I realized then that I might have a gift for making people laugh when the occasion offered itself. And so I started doing school plays and absolutely fell in love with it. But it took me by surprise.
0: What was it like growing up in apartheid South Africa?
1: It's a question that's often da- often asked, Murray. I think that we were forced to live with guilt. We still live with guilt. My family wasn't a supporter of apartheid. We were supporters of the Prove- Progressive Federal Party and Helen Sussman's movement against apartheid. But there was very, mu- very little that you could do about it. And, uh, of course, when I left school, I had to serve in the military. I had to serve two years in the military. My options were that I could leave the country as a political refugee, I didn't want to do that. I could go to prison for six years. It was a mandatory sentence and there was no mitigation of sentence. Or I could go into the military. So I went into the military. I actually enjoyed my two years there because I had already qualified as a school teacher, high school teacher, before going into the military. So I was I was deployed as a school teacher. And uh, I taught English and mathematics both in the Caprivi Strip on the border, which was an active area, and in KwaZulu Natal near my home. And I, at one stage, was teaching two children whose fathers or they had relatives on Robben Island, imprisoned on Robben Island. So it was a, a highly politically charged time. But I remember sitting on the desk and chatting to my class and saying, look, I know you don't approve of me and you don't have to approve of me and you certainly don't have to approve of the uniform I'm wearing. But I am a qualified mathematics teacher and you need to get your matric and I'm here to help you so we can, we can have a, a pact here. And uh, they think, I think they grew to trust me and to like me. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't have a bad time during my military service.
0: How did theatre influence the change that occurred in South Africa, if at all?
1: I think that theatre has a role to play. Unfortunately, it's not as big a role as one would like it to be. I was involved in a lot of theatre that was protesting against the regime. In fact, I wrote a play myself about the military called Sunday School for Rottweilers. It was a play about the inconscription campaign and about one notable person who was a conscientious objector and was imprisoned for six years, and it incorporated his trial. It was a good medium for conveying material that was at that time unable to be conveyed under a restricted press, but I don't know that it actually did anything to change the regime. In most cases, it was preaching to the converted. Those who didn't want to be converted certainly weren't going to be in the theater listening to that kind of and that kind of stuff. And uh, I think for a time it damaged theatre in South Africa because there was too much of a preoccupation with with fighting the regime in terms of the subject matter. Agit-prop theatre is what we used to call it, you know, I don't, which I suppose is a contraction of agitation and propaganda. I, don't know. I think it damaged the theatre scene for a while. But uh, we've always had a very good and vibrant theatre scene in South Africa. I'd like to talk about that a little later, but tell us about the
0: current state of theatre in South Africa.
1: I think that live theatre is struggling all over the world, Murray. I wouldn't be able to answer for America, but I see the fall off in the number of productions and certainly regional productions in Britain. I've been involved with theatre in Britain and toured around Britain. You don't see as many uh, regional companies as you used to. You, there's certainly the rep companies have pretty much died out. And uh, even in the large centres, theatre is uh, peopled. Um, The audiences are drawn not only from the local population but largely from an itinerant tourist population. So theatre, live theatre sadly has waned and no less so in South Africa. We do have a number of very popular festivals in South Africa. We have the Grahamstown National Arts Festival Uh, There's a festival at my old school, Hilton College, in in KwaZulu-Natal and several others where a lot of new and interesting work gets done. What's very difficult for producers, and I have produced myself so I know this all too well, is that to make live theatre pay its own way is a great challenge. And I think that's so anywhere in the world.
0: Well, it's time for our first music selection, and you've chosen I Like America by Noel Coward. Tell us about that.
1: Well, Noel Card, I discovered when I was a young teenager. And I went into Pamela Reed's record shop and there was a special offer, five rand ninety-nine, which is tuppence haven, not worth a penny these days. But it was a double album of Noel Card, and I listened to it and I was absolutely enchanted by it. And one of his songs is I Like America. And I thought that was appropriate for this trip to America because I like America.
2: I don't care for china japan's far too small i've rumbled the rio grand i hate asia minor i can't bear bengal and i shudder to think of that awful stink on the road to samarkand it's really hell that dreadful smell on the road to samarkand but I like America, I have played around Every slappy, happy hunting ground And I find America okay I've been about a bit, but I must admit That I didn't know the half of it till I hit the USA No likely lass in Boston mass from passion will recoil
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Murray McGibbon, and our guest today is the actor Graham Hopkins. Graham, backtracking a little, you started your working life as a high school mathematics teacher, as you mentioned earlier. How did you come to transition into the world of professional theatre from 2 plus 2 equals (laughs) 4?
1: I think that probably the more interesting question was how did I come to be a mathematics teacher in the first place? Well, tell us about that. Well, when I gave up, studying medicine. My father was a doctor, and he desperately wanted me to be a doctor as well. He was a very successful family doctor and well-loved well, well loved in Peter Marisburg, where I grew up. And when I went off to the University of Cape Town, which is a, a very prestigious university, still is, in South Africa, he was absolutely delighted, and he was looking forward, I think, to teaching me everything that he knew. And when I finally decided that it wasn't going to be the right thing for me, and I phoned him, it was the most difficult conversation i've ever had i think over the telephone and he was deeply deeply disappointed but to give him credit once he'd gotten over the shock he supported me and he said well you must do what's your life you must do what you want to do with it but he said if you're going to study theater please for my sake just study something that is saleable (laughs) <laughs> and I was reasonably good at mathematics. I'd, you know, done well at it at school. And I thought, well, I'll take a credit in mathematics. And so I qualified as a mathematics and English teacher. But one of, my other ma- one of my other majors, of course, was drama. Now, unfortunately, when you have something to fall back on as a performer, you inevitably fall back on it. And that's what happened. I took out a teaching department loan. I needed to pay the loan back. And so I found myself in Peter Maritzburg at a high school teaching mathematics. But I thought to myself, well, hang on a moment. You didn't give up studying medicine to be a mathematics teacher. Uh, you, need to, you need to rattle things up a bit. And at that time, there was a, an audition tour going around the country. I took three days' urgent personal affairs leave, and I prepared an audition. And I was accepted into a small company in Johannesburg, a small youth company, doing new work. And I remember the following year, starting off, in a rehearsal room in an old school hall with a group of young professionals and we were doing an adaptation of Henry Fielding's Tom Jones and having the most enormous amount of fun. I was earning very, very little, two-thirds of what I'd been earning as a starting school teacher. So I had barely two pennies to rub together, but I kept pinching myself because I thought I'm being paid to do what I love doing. And that was the start of it. And I found that that first year I struggled, struggled to feed myself. But very quickly people got to know that I could do this and that. I got cast in radio plays. I uh, got cast in a couple of big commercials and started to earn a little bit of money. And uh, I have not looked back. It's been absolutely wonderful.
0: That kind of training you received in a professional company, does that still exist in South Africa today?
1: Very sadly, not, Murray, and I think that this is also a global problem you know in in Britain, certainly in uh, the mid twentieth century, you had very active rep companies, and a lot of people did their training in those rep companies, repertory companies, and they would perform for two weeks while rehearsing the next play, and they would you know have a two 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 weekly turnaround you 'd be doing a a major role the first time in the first production and a supporting role the second and then another major role and so on. You'd do many, many, many plays in one year. We didn't have such a big turnover in the company that I, was, that I joined, but we used to do between five and six productions a year. So you would re- rehearse, open the play, uh, have a couple, of day, a couple of weeks where you had the days off and you were performing at night, and then you would start rehearsing the next one. And I was part of that company for five, nearly six years. And so in that period, did over 30 Productions over 30 roles, being challenged to do roles that you know in the open market I might not have been cast in, and it was enormously good training ground. Now those companies don't exist anymore. Um, with the with the end of the nationalist government and 1994, there were obviously other priorities. There still are, and arts funding is it takes second place to things like housing, which is perfectly understandable. But the sad consequence of that is that this training ground doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist in Britain. It doesn't exist here, and at least in, in, in South Africa. I don't know whether it exists in America, but um, I believe that that's training that you just can't get anywhere else. You know, you learn to act by acting. You simply cannot learn it in a theoretical way, as you would know. It's a very very practical discipline.
0: So with so much experience under your belt, about 33 years on, on stage, could you highlight some of your memorable moments and maybe some of those that you thought, gosh, how did I ever get involved with this?
1: You know, Murray, it's an interesting process because every time I rehearse a play, there is always some point in the rehearsal, in the her- rehearsal process where I think, why on earth am I doing this? I can't act. What, we, we, you know, Who am I kidding? It's all going to be a disaster, and uh, somehow, usually, one manages to pull something out of the bag. But you're only as good as your last performance, and I think that an actor who is complacent and thinks that they can do it without, you know, putting in that extra effort, is probably kidding themselves. Uh, I think that brilliance only comes out of uh, out of challenge and of challenging oneself, and I try to do that as much as I can. I've had disastrous performances. I've had productions where we've all thought we've been wonderful and the critics have thought us dreadful or we've all thought we've been wonderful and the critics have thought we've been wonderful and the audiences haven't come. So the proof of the pudding really is in the eating. If the audiences flock to see you and uh, the critics love you and you're having fun, that's probably you know three out of three and uh, you probably can tick that off as a success. But those don't come around that often, let's face it.
0: Can you talk specifically about certain characters you've played or productions you've been in
1: that you just thought, this is one for the history books? Mm. Certainly. You know, there have been um, – the first time I performed in a big musical, I'm not a musical actor at all, not a musicals actor at all. I do have some dance training. I have some singing training. But I'm an actor who sings a little and dances a little. And the first really big musical I was cast in was, was playing Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, which is an absolute gift at the State Theatre in Pretoria. So um, I think it's about uh, 1,600 capacity, a 45-piece orchestra in the pit. And I recall the first time I performed with the orchestra and that wonderful full-bodied sound rising up out of the orchestra pit. It brings goosebumps to my flesh, thinking about it even now. And to sing, and, and, and Higgins does sing a bit, it's a sort of Sprechelgesang, but uh, he does sing a bit. To sing with a 45-piece orchestra has got to be the most wonderful feeling in the world. You feel you feel as though you're, you've spread your wings and you're flying. And uh, th- that was a truly memorable experience. And I won an award for Best Performance in the Musical that year, and and I'm deeply proud of that. Other performances that I really enjoyed, uh, uh, it was a play called... Uh, Scenes from an Execution by Howard Barker, wonderful play, which is about, oh, medieval Venice. But a wonderful play. We played, played this at the at the famous Market Theatre in Johannesburg, and uh, it was just a play that. There are some roles when you read them, you think this is I can I can do this, I can do this better than anyone I know. And I'm going to grab the bull by the horns. And uh, again, I think that when you're playing something like that, it's the most exhilarating thing in the world. You step onto the stage and you own the space uh, and it's just the most wonderful thing. And any live performer, any actor will know that, that that magic is completely and utterly addictive.
0: South Africans often tend to sell themselves short, I think, How does South African theatre measure up in terms of an international standard? You travel a lot abroad. Is it on the decline? Is it maintaining itself? Or do you think that some South African theatre could take its place well and truly in the international arena?
1: Murray, I think that the best of South African theatre is as good as anything that you will find anywhere in the world. Now, it's, it's hard for me to say that because I'm a South African actor. But I have tried to be Objective about it, and I've seen theatre in, in, uh, in Australia, in Sydney, and in Melbourne. I've seen theatre in Britain. I've seen theatre in Europe, and of course, some of it is absolutely mind-blowingly wonderful, and some of it is extremely ordinary, and some of it is just not not good at all. And you will find the same range in South Africa, but I do believe that the best of our performers and the best of our playwrights best if our theater practitioners can hold their head up high anywhere in the world.
0: So Peter Brook says that he can take any empty space and just get somebody to walk through that space while someone else is watching them for an active theater to be engaged, which sounds terribly simple. What do you think of that comment?
1: I, I, th- I think it's a very interesting comment. Uh, it does offer all the, all the three ingredients, a stage, a space, a performance space, somebody in it, moving across it, standing in it, and somebody watching, watching with a critical eye, watching with an eye that is open to be entertained, and I believe that that is possible. On the other hand, I think that one can disengage with the person watching very easily by not being focused, by not being uh, in the moment, and by offering something that is less than watchworthy, if that makes any sense.
0: Is there some definition that we could share with our listeners of what theater is or what role does it play in society?
1: I would like to think that it makes people think about the world in ways that they might not otherwise think about the world to perhaps challenge their belief systems. We always talk about entertainment and uh, I think some theatre managements fall into the trap of thinking that the only thing that you could really sell to anybody is is really funny. Laugh a minute. You're going to split your sides. Well, that's one type of theatre, yes. And I believe that the best kind of theatre will make you laugh incidentally. I think that King Lear has some very light-hearted and funny moments in it, although it's by no means a comedy. So a serious play well told, will on occasion make you laugh. But what's the great test of, of good theatre? Is that it entertains. And what is entertainment? Entertainment is not about laughing and having a good, a good time, necessarily. Entertainment is about being engaged. I will entertain your mind. I will engage your mind. I'll make you think about yourself, about your environment, about the world, about life, and come out enriched. That's entertainment, in my opinion. Let's talk a
0: little about Shakespeare's original pronunciation production of King Lear that you played at Indiana University. Before being invited to take on this role, had you heard of original pronunciation?
1: I had heard a little about it. In fact, I'd been in in the UK and just missed lecture by David Crystal, who's done a lot of work on on original pronunciation. So I knew a little about, uh, about it, and I'd surfed the net, and I'd seen a couple of examples of it, and been quite intrigued to realize how accessible those sounds are, the moment you hear original pronunciation, you think, oh, well, that sounds, does that sound Irish? Does that sound Scottish? Is that West Country, North Country? can't quite place it, but it sounds familiar. And I think that's the extraordinary thing about OP is that it sounds familiar to you wherever you are. Even in America, the use of the pronounced R at the beginning of words and in the end of words. I mean, I would say, how is your mother? I would never pronounce the R. But in original pronunciation, I would need to say, "O oh, is your mother pronouncing the R at the end of the word? That's very familiar in North America. It's almost ubiquitous, the pronunciation of R in words. In what
0: way do you think O-P either enhances or hinders uh, modern audiences' appreciation of the text.
1: The appreciation of the text, I think, is, or appreciation, appreciation of the text, as it would be in, in OP, is enhanced because there are rhymes, rhythms, puns, cadences, which don't exist in received modern received pronunciation i think it's perhaps worth talking a little bit about modern received pronunciation which really only emerged during the 20th century and the explosion of radio and television media in britain and there was a there was a sort of bbc voice and people started to evolve this uh received pronunciation this posh spoken english queen's english if you like with the advent of of radio and television before that everybody was spoken with, would have spoken with their own regional accents and there was no standard english so its it received pronunciation is in itself quite a modern uh, development and uh, original pronunciation is much more identifiable with regional accents as i said it sounds like a modern british regional accent uh, there's a contraction of the transatlantic divide because many of the sounds are common to North American speech. So I think it's a kind of lingua franca. It's a a way of speaking and accessing Shakespeare that is not alienating, whereas posh English, pretty much the way I speak, I'm afraid, can be quite alienating. And a lot of the rhymes, rhythms and puns in Shakespeare are lost.
0: Could you give us an example or two, perhaps?
1: Well, perhaps one of the good ones from from King Lear is uh, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. That's pretty much received uh, uh, pronunciation. In opiate, we would be oh, sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Now, what happens there? Two things. One is it becomes less, less posh. It becomes more accessible. It becomes more earthy. And secondly... Sharper and serpent rhyme. Oh, sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. And throughout Shakespeare, those kind of rhymes and rhythms, assonance, cadences occur.
0: Your second musical selection is by Edith Piaf. Would you like to speak about
1: that? On my 21st birthday, a very good friend of mine, a school friend of mine, gave me a long-playing record of Edith Piaf. I'd never heard of her before. And I put it on, and I was first startled by the sound and then absolutely enchanted by it. And uh, I have a huge collection of Edith Piaf, and that's why I chose one today.
3: You Grins mes plaisirs Je n'ai plus besoin d'eux Balayer les amours Avec leur tremolos, Balayer pour toujours Je repars à zéro Non, rien de rien Non, je ne regrette rien you be <laughs>
0: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Murray McGibbon, and our guest today is the South African actor Graham Hopkins. Graham, do you speak any French?
1: Non, je suis désolé. Je ne parle pas français. (laughs) Any other languages? (laughs) I don't speak French, alas. I would love to speak French. I think it's such a beautiful musical language, and um, I love Paris. I was there with my family over Christmas. And uh, we walked and walked and walked. And I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And uh, I think that the French language has such musical cadences. I love it. Absolutely love it. Do I speak any other languages? Yes. Well, growing up in South Africa, it was mandatory to learn Afrikaans. I can understand Afrikaans reasonably well. And uh, I speak a bit of Zulu. Of course, I was born and brought up in KwaZulu-Natal. So, I understand a my Zulu.
0: <laughs> I understand a little <laughs> Zulu. Uh, do you subscribe to the philosophy of Edith Piaf
1: Song? No, I regret nothing. <laughs> I don't think that there's any point in regretting anything in one's life, and I have the philosophy that anything one does is not wasted. Certainly any experience one has is grist to the actor's mill, so even experiences that I haven't enjoyed, uh, experiences where I've been uncomfortable or unhappy, become grist to the actor's mill, as I say. One internalizes them, and one, one finds oneself using them to access areas of emotional or intellectual, a space that one would not necessarily have experienced. You bring all of these things to bear when you're trying to embody a character which is not oneself. I said earlier on in the discussion that we've had that I was a very shy young man, and I still think I'm a fairly diffident person. I'm not your laugh-a-minute life-and-soul-of-the-party kind of guy. And I think that when I appear as myself, as Graham Hopkins, as I am now, I'm not the extrovert that people tend to expect of actors. And I don't think actors need to be extroverts. They need to be able to subsume their own characters and enter into the character of another person. Uh, And I think that's the real talent with performers. People tend to mistake the fact that oh well you're a, you're an actor you must be you must be gregarious and outgoing and full of fun and it's not necessarily so and uh, so I, I haven't changed because I've been a performer I've just learned to f- worm my way in to characters that I'm playing. Speak a
0: little bit about how you wormed your way
1: into King Lear, which is arguably Shakespeare's biggest and greatest role well of course it's a it's a great gift for any actor with classical aspirations to play King Lear so as it was for me to play it here at i u King Lear is if you look at the text the most extraordinary set of circumstances he behaves in a way that is really quite mad right from the beginning, but I think that's the key to it that uh what is a very real situation uh, Filial relationships, family relationships, gone wrong. And it's about power and about prejudice and about revenge. It's about uh, betrayal, corruption, anguish, madness. So exploring all of those in an edited version of the play was a challenge. But I think that if the audience goes with you on that journey... There's a world to be explored that is wonderful and enlightening and moving. Getting inside the character is always a process that takes time. You have to... Well, people often say to me, how do you learn all those words? And I used to think that was a silly question. But the older I get, the more I realize it's not a silly question at all. With great difficulty. Yeah, with great difficulty. And it's it's a big chore. And how do you do it? Firstly, I learn them on the page, but that is only step one. Step two is to transfer them off the page, and there comes a time during rehearsal when I don't allow myself to look at the book anymore, because if I look at the book, I see the letters on the page, and that's what imprints in my my brain. Now, when a director gives notes, as they do after rehearsals, a lot of people write the notes down. I don't ever, and I have to sometimes explain to directors that it's not that I'm taking their notes lightly. It's that I'm internalizing them. So if somebody gives me a note about a particular point in the production, I will internalize that, I'll visualize that moment, and I'll bank that in my memory. I cannot write it down. If I write it down, it'll stay on the written page, and I won't internalize it, and I won't uh, put that note into practice. So that's my process. Firstly, you learn it on the page. And when you s- first get off book, as we call it in the theater, when you first do a rehearsal without the book, a lot of the time you're looking at a photographic image of the book. Turn the page. What's I could see that word on the top of the next page. Only when the book has gone from those images in your head and you're looking at The theater environment, the stage environment, the person you're looking at, looking to their eyes as you're saying it. When that transition has happened, then for me it begins to become real and internalized. So to reiterate, how do you learn your words is a very, very good question because I think it's very integral to the actor's process. Once you've learned those words, the act of learning the words becomes unimportant because they're carried by the situation, the drama of the moment. I'm carrying Cordelia onto the stage. I'm weeping because this is my dead daughter, and it's welling up inside me, and I can't stop it. Then you've made the transition from the page to the stage, and that's all important.
0: And complicated by the fact that you had to learn it in ostensibly a new language...
1: Yes, although, as I said a little earlier, the original pronunciation is much easier than one would think. Once you've learned those key alterations to the vowel sounds and to the consonants, they become more natural than received pronunciation. And the beautifully written Shakespearean text comes alive in a way that is uh, real, auditory revelation in many instances
0: a further complication is the fact that the play was done in an arena setting or this is what we might call in the round to what extent did that affect your performance
1: Murray I enjoy playing in the round and I think we get uh, all too few opportunities to perform in the round it's a much more immersive experience there's audience all around you you feel part of the audience In the proscenium arch technique, although one learns it and it becomes second nature, that uh, open book delivery towards people to allow the audience to be the, the third eye, is an artificial way of performing. So in the round, although you're also looking at sight lines and you're looking at grids and making sure that you're not blocking any member of the audience for too long in any one position, once you've got that movement and motion in place in consultation with your director it becomes a much more immersive and much more real experience so I really enjoyed the performance in the round Uh, I think the audiences will respond to that too
0: Graham what advice do you have for newly graduated students looking to work in the performing arts
1: my advice would be to go for it You've decided to do this. It's a wonderful life if you can make it work for you. Don't be afraid of it. Go for it headlong. But at the same time, look for other strings to your bow. You don't want to end up waiting tables while you hope for the next audition, the next role to come up. It's certainly the way in which I've led my life. I've made sure that I've had other things to do. I've been involved in role-play training. I've been involved in uh, executive training to mining engineers, for goodness sake. Uh, I've been involved in the financial services industry. I've got a lot of other things that I do, always employing my uh, acting skills and teaching skills as part of that. So I lead a very, very busy life, and I think I've been very fortunate, but I've also put in place those skills that are required to do allied work when the work that you really love, the stage work or the film work, is, 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 is not there.
0: Do you think theater will ever die? There have been many developments in film, television, uh, technical aspects of theater, and yet it seems that legit theater as we know it has not changed very much.
1: It's my great belief and hope that the world will come back to live theatre performance in the way that they used to respond to it. I think that where we are at the moment is that the digital revolution is, is everybody's darling. But in the end, it is digital. In the end, it is not real. In the end, it's, it's canned. And that live theatre experience is something as old as humanity. And I believe and hope that the world will come back to appreciating live theatre as they did once upon a a time. It might not be in our lifetimes, but I'm hanging in there with the hope that it will. Do you think you'd ever branch out to –
0: you spoke about producing theatre. Do you think you would ever take on directing
1: as a more full-time occupation? You know, Murray, I think that a director's skill is – Uh, a a very extraordinary one. It's not one that's hugely attracted me. I have done it from time to time, but I would infinitely prefer to be trading the boards myself. And so I feel that... I think some of the most enjoyable theatre experiences I've had have been ensemble pieces where four, five, six actors are working together. There's no one leading man or woman. Uh, It's not a star piece, and you're working together with the, with the director to formulate uh, an entertainment that will divert and engage audiences. And when I've won on a couple of occasions awards with my fellow cast members for best ensemble uh, production, that for me is perhaps the greatest accolade because uh, I'm a team player. I like to feel that everybody is getting their fair share of, of performance and that we're all contributing to the one piece together. Um, this is not the case with some actors. Some, ca- some actors prefer to be the star and to be recognized as the star and everybody must speak their lines quickly, please, so that uh, I can be slow and ponderous and wonderful with mine. <laughs> I'm not like that. You asked about directing and I've sort of deflected that question a little. I've chosen not to enter the directing space because I so love performing and I think that's the short answer.
0: You must have had a lot of exciting experiences as an actor where you've been asked to do things well outside your comfort zone. Share with our listeners some of those.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um, Well, one particular experience was a a collaboration between the BBC and ITV, a British film being filmed in South Africa. And uh, I had the privilege of acting opposite Miriam Margulies and uh, Hugh Laurie and um, Fred Molina. And... um I had to play the pilot of a light aircraft, single-engined aircraft. And so my co-passenger was actually the flight instructor. There was a very short lady who was pretending to be a young boy, dressed up as a young boy, sitting in the co-pilot seat. She was actually flying the plane, but I had to pretend that I was flying the plane. But uh, she was an instructor, and she actually taught me how to, how to fly. And it was absolutely wonderful because when we were going up there to set up the shots, she said, well, you might as well learn how to fly this plane. So I learned to taxi, you know, steering with my feet. And I learned how to, to uh, um, track down the runway and take off and fly the plane. And... I hope nobody else was in the plane with you. <laughs> well, the cameraman who was turning a little green around the gills, <laughs> sitting in the back seat and sticking the, the, the lens into my, into my face. But it was enormous fun. And we had to, of course, this plane had to crash. So we had to do some very dangerous flying, which uh, I just thought it was absolutely wonderful. The cameraman, I think, nearly threw up, but uh, it was wonderful fun. So one gets to do things one would never imagine doing. I once filmed part of a horror series in Croatia during the Bosnian War. And we were just north of Zagreb on the Slovenian border. And it was the fall of the House, the house of Usher, and I was playing the, the I, the first person singular. And I remember on that first morning, the horse wrangler came to me and he said, oh, how good are you for the riding? And I said, well, I, I can ride a horse, but I'm, I'm not a professional. Um, he said, this is a big problem because they ask for a very big horse. It's it's very big horse. Well, I looked at it and it was a stallion, great big black Bavarian stallion, enormous horse. And I was dressed in all of this regalia. Boots and top hat and scarves and all the rest of it. And I had to get a leg up onto the horse. It was too high to get my foot into the stirrup. Got into the horse. And we had a little practice round. And we went round the field and it was fine. And we got to understand each other. And he was a very well-trained horse. He was marvelous. Just before the shot, one of the props people came and hung a portmanteau over the saddle. It wasn't a proper saddlebag, It was a portmanteau and was lying against the horse's rump. So they called action, and I walked the horse perfectly round, hit my mark perfectly, looked up at the castle emerging from the mists in the distance, dug the horse in the sides, and he walked it, started into a walk, dug him again, he started into a trot, and as he trotted, the portmanteau flew up and smacked him on the rump. And of course he went, oh, right, we're off for a gallop then, are we? And the horse took off, and my hat my my top hat came flying off and my star scarf came flying off I was standing up in my stirrups leaning backwards trying to hold this horse and we were heading for a river and I thought oh my goodness this is the end of me and uh, my horse training from my childhood came back and I, I eased him around in a big arc towards the trees and the road and I thought well either he's going to plunge through the trees and I'll be swept off and that'll be the end of me or he'll stop and we got to the trees and he pulled up very, very agitated, whinnying and blowing through his nostrils. And I calmed him down, slowly calmed him down, slowly calmed him down and then walked back to the set. I said, we're going to walk back to the set. And we walked back to the set. And we got back to the set and the horse wrangler and the director were almost at fisticuffs because this had happened. But it was a very exciting and it's a wonderful anecdote to be, to be able to tell you now.
0: Well, thanks for that.
1: How has it been to maintain a normal life
0: with a family and do all these crazy things?
1: I have a son. We have a single son. Uh, we did. I did a lot of acting before he was born. So I am in you know, I'm I'm what nearly sixty, and Tom's uh, twenty. So I was forty. We were forty before we had children. I'm very fortunate in that my wife understands the business and uh, she's a school teacher and um she has held the, held the fort at home when I've been called away to go and film or to to act in other cities other countries and I'm very fortunate in her that she's been able to do that and understands and uh, I I hope that she and and my son are proud of of what I do um it's not easy it's not easy I remember touring the UK once and uh, there was the musical director uh, the, of of a show I was doing and we were in Kingston on Hull and we would finish the Saturday night performance and he would get in his car and drive four hours down to Surrey where his family were and see them for Sunday and on Monday morning he'd have to get back in his car and drive all the way up to the north and I thought that's not the kind of life I would like to like to lead it's unfortunately dictated by the business but I've been very fortunate I think
0: Your final song is Ella Fitzgerald's Every Time We Say Goodbye. This will bring us to the conclusion of our interview today. Tell us a little bit about why you chose this particular piece.
1: Just love Ella Fitzgerald. Again, this is a little bit of a nostalgia trip for me because the songs I've chosen are very much songs from my my early teens. I was different perhaps from some of my compatriots who were all listening to heavy metal, Jethro Tull and the Stones, and so on. I was listening to altogether different type of music, and Ella's one of those. I've been speaking
0: with Graham Hopkins, star of Stage, Screen, Radio, and Television. Thank you for being with us, Graham, and best of luck on your future travels and theatrical adventures. Thank you, Murray. For Profiles, I'm Murray McGibbon, and thanks for listening.
1: Copies of this, or other programs, can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about
2: Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of
1: WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer, the studio engineer, and radio audio director is Michael Pascash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.